Seth, give me a mic test. Test, test. One, two. Looks like we're plugged in. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Welcome to Copy That Radio. Copy that. Seth, what is this? Our podcast. And we are here to tell stories and share stories about life as a first responder. That's correct. I'm a retired firefighter, and you are? A retired police officer. I used what's the another, official What's term. another word for Cop. That? Cop. Johnny Law, 5-0. Yeah, we'll skip the derogatory one. <laughs> so a cop and a hose dragger in a room together, telling right. stories. Yes, and we have guests. We have lots of guests lined up. Our friends from all over the country, actually. Seth is from California, where he worked at CHP, and I'm from Florida, Central Florida, where I worked for Lake County Fire. And we have guests that we worked with, guests that we know just from our connections, from courses, seminars, whatever, and then people we've just been connected with over the years. These stories are going to be incredibly entertaining, amazing, tragic, all of that wrapped into one. So uh, be prepared for occasional use of foul language. Um, and some tearjerkers. Some tearjerkers. Yeah, and definitely things going to be said and told on here that you've probably never heard before. Uh, yeah, and and some some gruesome details. So, we'll we'll try not to have them all the time, but it'll be there occasionally. That's the nature of the job. So prepare yourself. Yeah. Well, that being said, welcome to Copy That Radio, and let's get started. You can find us at Copy That Radio on Instagram and Anchor.fm/slash/CopyThatRadio is our hosting platform for this show. You can also find us anywhere podcasts are popular: Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google. Hey, we're the hosts a major podcast platform. Anything else? That's it. Enjoy. No. What do you do now, Seth? Oh, my job. My What's real your, job. What is your job? <laughs> I'm a real estate agent. Uh, I work for 10-8 Real Estate Team. Uh, we are located up in here, up here in Coeur d'Alene. What about you, Jared? Uh, I own a little training studio called Northland Strength in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and my wife has a little small private school called Northland Training Academy that we just launched. And we're going live next week, actually. Awesome. Sweet. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So that's it. That's us. That's who we are. That's what we do. And if you're ever up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, come visit us. Or you can just shoot us a message on any of the social channels. Let's talk. All right. Here's the next episode. Welcome. Hey guys, uh, this is Copy That Radio, Seth. And Jared. Hey, before this episode, we wanted to just um, kind of give a disclaimer. The audio quality isn't the best. This was our pre-studio days. Um, however, the story is uh, incredible, heart-wrenching, uh, emotional, and worth, worth listening to. So, That's correct, yeah. I edited the file and... It's the best quality that it's going to be, but again, it was before we had mics and it was set up in the studio. We were just on the floor of our gym talking with an iPad. And uh, this is Joe's story of a police shooting he was involved in. Um, it's really emotional and incredible. Yeah, it's pretty intense. So enjoy. Maybe not the right word for it. No, I mean, I, I think people need to hear these stories. That's, again, the point of the podcast, but... The story is intense and a little heart-wrenching and um, maybe not for people who would be sensitive to this. Yeah. Well, give it a listen and that's that. Yeah. That being said, here is Joe's episode. 
So it was the winter 2014 timeframe. Um, we started off our day like with three in the morning. I had a, a SWAT brief, so we had a detail. It was a, there was a, a murder that happened up in the hills, up, up in the mountains. And so there was a large piece of property that we had to go search and try to apprehend this guy. And because it was multiple pieces of uh, buildings on the stru multiple structures on the property, we brought two SWAT teams from, so our SWAT team and a, a neighboring agency SWAT team came and uh, to coordinate everything and get everything laid out, we met up at three in the morning and the drive up and then uh, the plan was to serve the, serve the warrant at seven. So long story short, it was snowing, it was a long day. By the time we got back to town, I had to work that, I was supposed to be at work that seven that morning, but because I was on the team, you know, that came first and then I got down to town, switched out of my SWAT uniform, put on my patrol uniform and I was, um, getting a cup of coffee and one of my partners called me on the car-to-car uh, -car radio and we had been watching a, a narcotic house um, and so there was a the owner of the house drove a Mustang and so over the past few weeks we were just trying to catch that car leaving so we can do a stop on it and, and just see see how things went from there well of course I'm in line getting a cup of coffee and as soon as I leave as soon as I leave the coffee shop and I even pulled out on the main road. My partner says, hey, that Mustang's leaving. So I tell him to stop it. And he tries to light it up and it goes uh, failure to yield. So it's a pursuit. So I remember I just paid for this cup of coffee. I take the lid and I throw the, the coffee out of the car, <laughs> out of the cup, and throw the cup in my passenger seat. And we start pursuing this vehicle. And we ended up going probably about 40 miles up into the hills where we just came down from. <laughs> Uh, luckily for us, though, because we were up there and it was a homicide suspect who wasn't home at the time, we had the helicopter, so the helicopter was able to help us out. Anyways, the vehicle went up there. We had SWAT guys that were already up there that helped us pursue. We ended up catching these guys. Um, so now, fast forward, it's probably... Were they, I have to ask, were they carrying drugs at the time? Um, no, there was a small amount of narcotics and some cash. And Why'd they run? I have no idea why anyone runs. Sometimes I just... Suspended driver's license. Yeah, who knows? You know, yeah. He did have a little bit of narcotics and cash. And back then in California, it was still a felony. So <laughs> there's a reason to run. Yeah. Um, so fast forward now. It's in the afternoon. It's around quitting time, 5 o'clock. Um, the way we did it there is we had 12-hour shifts. And so we had a five guy that would come 5 to 5. And then we had a seven guy that would work 7 to 7. I was the seven to seven guy and my partner was the five guy. And so there was a call for service. And traditionally when a call for service comes out, dispatch will come on the radio and they'll give a call sign and then dispatch you to the call. Well, uh, given the events of the day that had transpired, it was a really busy day. It was our Friday, it was our last day on and we were gonna roll to night shift. So where I worked, you work day shift and then when you go to night shift, you have a, a seven days off before you go to night shift. So it was our seven off. So we're trying to catch up on all of our paper, dispatch calls in to the patrol room over the telephone and says, hey, I know everyone's down on paper, um, but I have this call and I, I need someone to go to it. And so I'm like, what's the call? And so she says that there is a lady on the line who says her son lives on her property, but not in her house. And that when she went to town to go shopping, uh, her son broke into her house. 
And so she wants to talk to deputies and she'll meet him at the edge of the road, the driveway leading up to her property. So I said, okay, sounds simple enough, I'll handle it. And so I asked my five o'clock partner, who mind you, it's now 510, uh, if, he minded, if he minded covering me because I remember dispatch telling me, you know, they specifically said, hey, see, see, see if your partner will cover you, take a cover with you. Okay, I thought that was weird, you know, mother-son type thing. And, Back then, it was we'd go solo to a lot of things. So, but cowboys, yeah, cowboys. <laughs> that's what I always thought of the sheriff's department. Yeah, yeah that's how it was back home too. Uh huh. It's wild. One day, can this. handle anything. Yeah. Yep. So, anyways, I she was she asked, so I honored that request. So I looked over at my partner and I said, "Hey, do you mind going? I know you're already past your time. Are you almost done with your reports?" And he's like, "Yeah." And it was kind of on his way home anyway, so he came with me. You guys take your cars home? We did. We had take home cars, so he could. You know, my thought was he could leave there when I didn't need him anymore and he could drive home and I'd handle the rest. So we get there on the side of the road and we meet mom at the edge of the driveway. And so mom's, you know, she's pretty animated when I meet her. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And so mom says nothing about her house being broken into. That was the first, you know, that's why I'm here, right? You know, mom's like, her son needs to be 5150. You know, so for those who's not familiar with that term, it's just a 72-hour mental health evaluation. So people that are going through crisis, um, you know, if they want to hurt themselves or hurt others, we can do a little evaluation, just talk to them. And if we think that they're unsafe to be left at the scene where they would hurt themselves or hurt someone else, we can do a mental health detention on them, take them to a, a facility where they can be evaluated by behavioral health people. And so mom's telling me that, you know, her son's, she's actually using the term 5150, which tells me that she's, familiar with you know some mental health things and so she says that her son was recently uh 5150 and that he was able to convince the doctors and the staff that he was not crazy and so they released him and he's now back at home and so i'm like kind of confused on this because he broke into her house so i'm like what do you mean and she's like well just talk to him and you'll see and she actually said just talk to him and you'll see he's crazy that once you talk to him you'll see because my position was, well, if a doctor already cleared him, I'm not a doctor. My job is to take him to a trained professional. And so if a trained professional says he wasn't 5150, you know, there's not much I can do for you, but I will talk to him. And you're saying that was just like a week ago? She said it was relatively, yeah, just a week ago. He just got out. Um, so I asked her, you know, you know, hey, you know, I heard he broke into your house. Yeah, he came into my house. Well, is he allowed to be there? No. Has he ever lived there? No, because there were some questions that we need to... You know, you know, sometimes it'll be like people that live there and they were recently, mom kicked them out and all their stuff's still there. So they had mm -hmm. access. So I had to ask her those questions. And, you know, I asked her if she had any weapons in her house because, you know, you know, did he take a gun? You know, so she said she didn't have no weapons in her house. And then um, did he have any weapons at his house because she said that he had a place on the property. And, you know, those questions were answered. So we follow mom up. And so we get up there to the top of the hill where they live. And I see two houses. And both houses front door, they're kind of in an L shape and they share a front lawn area. And I can see we pull up to, we'll just call him Jim. We pull up to Jim's house, which is the sun. So we pull up to Jim's house and I can see mom's house has a, a big picture window on the front of her house and it's all shattered. So, okay, I see that the window is broken. So mom pulls up, we pull behind her, my partner and I. And I said, okay, so this is Jim's house? And she says, yes. And so we walk up to the front porch of Jim's house. My partner and I are on each side of the door. Um, and I knock on the door. And I, 
I hear a voice inside the house and says, who is it? And I said, Jim, it's the sheriff's office. I just want to talk to you. And I can see there's frosted glass, so I can't really see in, but I can see uh, there's light on the other side of the frosted glass, so I can see shadows. And I see a shadow walking towards the front door. So, uh, and as the shadow gets to the front door, I hear the click, uh, the, the deadbolt was, was thrown open or thrown closed, so um, I could tell that I was being locked out. Um, not that I was trying to get in, but obviously I was being locked out. So I, and I'm talking, I'm keeping a dialogue with Jim. I'm like, Jim, what's going on? We're just here to talk. And he tells me I need a warrant. So I remember telling Jim, Jim, I don't need a warrant because I'm not here to search anything. I'm just here to talk to you, man. I just want to talk. You know, mom's concerned about you. And then Jim does this little, like, a, like, a, like you would a picture of a five-year-old. He, he starts singing warrant, warrant, you need a warrant. And, and he was actually singing it. And as he was singing it, I see a shadow walk away from the door. And so I was just like, oh, that's odd. You know, Jim's, you know, maybe there's something to mom's complaint that there's something going on with Jim. Yeah. And how, so, how many, like, do you get calls like this a lot? I mean, this is fairly common. Not, not exact specifics, but you guys do get. Um, yeah, I would say we get a common call for you. Most right? of our calls are, yeah, health related. It's, especially nowadays, you know, over time it's progressed. To a lot of our calls mm -hmm. these are mental health related um so yes it's it's one of those things and so i'm knocking trying to keep communication and after jim you know just get out of the way singing the warrant song <laughs> he didn't stop responding so my partner and i after we gave a good solid five minutes you know and okay he's not going to talk and i'm not going to force my way in on a mental health patient or a behavioral health thing i'm like there's no us indoors in for that um, if he doesn't want to cooperate with us you know, we're gonna go talk to mom be like hey we gave her a valiant effort <laughs> what would you like to do about your broken window is that because you don't want to you you don't want to force any kind of issue I mean if you, you just can't go in just can't go in you know we're you need. at the time he's not actively hurting himself mm -hmm. he's not hurting mom um, so there's no reason to force entry into someone's home you know for those circumstances you know we put ourselves in danger Jim potentially in danger and for what for what purpose we're there for a welfare check and yeah although odd behavior is being displayed at the time he's not cutting himself he's not telling us he's going to hurt himself or hurt mom those are the kind of the, the the check the threshold that we need to physically detain somebody okay. um, so I walk walk around the corner to where, where we parked and as I'm coming around the corner I hear mom talking and so I turn the corner and now I can see that mom's standing at an open door, um, and I look at look down the open door, and the, the open door leads to a hallway inside the main residence, and I can see Jim at the end of the hallway, and Mom is talking to Jim, asking him to come out. So I just kind of step in front of Mom, blocking Jim's view of Mom. And the hallway is, is a long hallway, like I said, it's like a side entrance to the residence off the garage, and so, I can see Jim standing at the edge of the hallway, but he's not full on, I'm looking at his chest and waist type thing. I'm looking at the side view of him and he's kind of offset from the hallway. So he's not directly in the hallway. He's kind of in a room at the edge of the hallway where I only see like half of his body from the side. So like half of this, I see the front half. And Jim's wearing a hoodie, it was a black hoodie. Um, first thing I noticed, you know, Jim, Jim had the, the hood over his head inside his house which is kind of weird people don't normally do that and he had his hands in his front pockets so I'm like I look down the hall and I'm like Jim 
you know, this is uh, sheriff's office. I just want to talk to you. And, and Jim very angrily yells at me, and he tells me I was talking to my mother, and his eyes got big, and the tone of his voice was really deep, and I could tell I, I hit a nerve because I stepped in between him and mom, and so was she right there too? She was behind me. She okay. wasn't beside me. Okay. I just cut her off and got just totally took over the door space. I kind of stood at the edge of the door, so the entrance. So it was just me. And, you know, so I'm like, well, Jim, you're talking to me now. So, and, and Jim, you know, here's what needs to happen. Your mom's concerned about you. Uh, she's really worried about that you want to hurt yourself or that you want to hurt her. You're not taking your meds. Um, you know, quite frankly, Jim, your mom says you're crazy. I can tell by looking at you and by communicating with you, you're not. I just need to make mom uh, see that I'm here, that I've checked on you and that you're good. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're good, I'm going to leave. Um, but I, I would like to check on you because mom's concerned and I, I just I don't want mom thinking that I didn't do anything So would you mind if I came in and Jim was very quick to tell me no? And so I was like, well, Jim, you know, I really just want to just talk talk to you and, and check on you And you're not in any trouble again, you know, you said a warrant earlier I don't need a warrant because I'm not here to search. I'm not even looking to get you in trouble And if I leave, you know, mom's gonna call me back. I gotta drive back up here So can I just come in? He goes, and Jim said fine and so once he said fine, I could tell he, was, he wasn't too happy, but he was willing to get me in there and get me out. So, you know, the, the whole, the, hood, the hands in the hoodie thing concerned me. And so the, 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 I guesstimated that the hallway is about 20 feet, 25 feet. Um, he was at the end of that 25 feet. So I really wanted to see his hands because I just didn't, you know, we're trained. That, you know, one of the first things you learn is the hand, hands kill you. People don't kill you. The hands kill you. You know, looking people in the eyes, great, but if you're not watching their hands, you're going to get hurt. So my first thing, you know, to Jim is I said, Jim, do you mind taking your hands out of your pockets and show me your hands? And so Jim takes his hand, removes his hands from his pockets, throws his hoodie off, and then sticks his hands out in the air, and he shakes them like, like a little kid with a hokey pokey, shaking them all about. And so it was kind of weird to me. I was like, okay, well, thanks, Jim. You're showing me your hands. Um, Jazz hands? Is that jazz what hands. There you go. Jazz, jazz hands. hands. Some jazz hands for me. <laughs> so then my, my next agenda was to kind of pull him out of that room that he was kind of sunken into. Because I, I didn't know if he had any weapons back there. And I, I don't like, the, you know, as a cop, you don't like the unknown. You want to you be able to see things. So I asked him if he would move from where his location was to a recliner in the, at the end of the hallway in the open room. Because I could see the recliner. And that would give me, allow me to see him sitting down and give me time to and see everything around him. Jim was, did not want to sit. He goes, I don't want to. And I was like, well, Jim, you'd be comfortable, and then I'd come sit next to you, and we'd have a little you know, conversation, but Jim was not budging. He did not want to. So I was like, all right, Jim. So I started walking into the, into the hallway, and I kept my I kind of, uh, there's some training that they call CIT training, that you go through when you're dealing with mental health patients or behavioral health issues. Uh, that crisis intervention training is okay. the, uh, what the acronym stands for. And so it's all about not coming across aggressive and, and moving, slow movements and not startling and just, uh, so long story short. So I take my hands and I outstretch both arms and I have my palms in the air. And I'm reassuring Jim with my palms open, my hands out, that I'm not here to hurt him. That, you know, I'm, I'm showing him that I'm not here to hurt him as I'm telling him I'm not here to hurt him. So I'm 
approaching Jim very slowly, arms out, telling Jim, you know, hey, I appreciate you letting me come in, Jim. Not here to hurt you. Um, just want to talk. And so I'm, I'm presenting myself in a, a non-aggressive manner. And so as I walk down the hall, I probably go about you know four or five feet, and there's an opening to my left. And the opening I can see is a laundry room uh, out of my peripheral. So I'm walking in past that, and I'm focused on Jim the whole time. And I got probably about nine to ten feet from Jim. What my guess is again, just a guess. Uh, and I can see Jim turn his shoulder, so I see him reach back behind him, and then instantly start charging towards me. And as he's charging, he's just letting out a war cry, just ah, scream loud. And I, his eyes are bulging. And so I'm looking at him in the eyes. I remember what I said about the hands. I kind of, his hand is raised up, his right arm is raised up above his head. And I catch a, a shimmer of a light because my first reaction is he's gonna tackle me. So I kind of like brace myself and was ready to grab him. And out top of my eye, I see a shimmer. I look up and there's a knife in his hand and it's, uh, it's a kitchen knife, it's like a butcher knife, probably you know, 10 inch blade. It, was a, it wasn't a steak knife, it was a big knife. Um, it's, I think it's crazy that the detail that you can remember that little, you know when the adrenaline's flowing and then like, that you can actually remember the details of that. Oh, it's slow mode. Yeah. Like, they, you know, they, uh, they always say like when you're in a critical incident, time stops and you just, your sensory. Um, so yeah, my, my, it was real slow mode. I remember, at the time, I was telling myself, I'm gonna get stabbed, I'm, like it's done, I'm, I can't prevent getting stabbed. And I remember telling myself, protect the neck. And I, it's the slow-mo, I remember, tuck your head. I'm, I told myself, tuck your head. So I put my ear to my shoulder, and I grabbed his wrist with a knife in it, and I grabbed his other shoulder with my other hand, and I immediately start backpedaling as he's pushing. Um, and so, I just did not want to take the knife to the neck. I'm like, protect the neck. And so I'm backpedaling, he's pushing. The entrance to the to the hallway that I came through from the, the exterior door, the door was left standing open, if you can imagine. So I thought I was gonna be pushed out the house and Jim would fall on top of me. Well, I smacked right into the door. So, and it hit me hard. I remember like almost taking my breath out because I was backpedaling, he was pushing. and. I hit solid against the door and busted my head on the door. And what it did is it gave me the momentum to push him off. So when I hit, I sprung forward and I was used all my might and just shoved him. And he flew off of me into the corner of the laundry room in the hallway. And so I took a deep breath. I felt like I could finally breathe. I got caught a breath like I wasn't breathing. And when that happened, you know, Jim hit against the wall and the knife was up and it's like his whole body smashed while Unbeknownst to me, my partner had come in behind me when I was approaching Jim. I thought I was, you know, I thought my partner was still on the front porch at the time. Um, so I see Jim get smashed against the wall, and I see my partner bent over, wrapping Jim up like he's going to take him to the ground. And I, I see Jim come down on top of my partner with a knife, and he's hammer fisting the knife at my partner's shoulder neck area. And so, you know, I felt like time stopped. <laughs> it took me. I remember freaking out and grabbing my gun um, off my side. I had to unholster it, and I just reached in, leaned in, and I pushed my partner. I threw my arm on his shoulder and pushed him on the ground. He fell over, and I uh, shot Jim one time. I thought I shot him in the chest. Um, 
it was instant reaction. My partner's on the ground. I could see blood by his neck. And uh, Jim immediately opens his hand and drops what I see is just now the handle of a knife. The blade's missing. And Jim kind of leans up against the walls. He's trying not to fall down. He falls down. So my partner's holding his neck. I could see it's uh, not bleeding that bad. Um, and Jim is laying on the ground and he's, he's groaning. And it, to me, he's ten, it looks like he was tense enough to try to get up and re-engage. Uh, but again, I, there was no, nothing in his hands. Um, and so I was gonna go try to cuff him and I kick his leg and he's stiff. And I, I realized that his body was tense enough because there was some physiological uh, stuff going on from the shooting that I, you know, Jim was stress and shock and all that was occurring. And I don't think Jim was trying to, I think Jim was trying to fight you know, the effect. And so at that point, uh, my partner gets up and I, you know, he's holding his neck and things are, so I sent him out. He, he shows me superficial, I believe, you know, the knife must have broken one of the first blow, glancing blows or whatever. Um, so he's good. He goes out and I tell him to watch the, watch my back because I, I was concerned that mom was out there. Obviously mom heard what just happened. Um, I don't know if dad's home. I don't know if brothers are home I don't know if mom's got guns or I don't know what you know, I just shot mom's you know I shot Jim mom's son so my big concern was someone coming in from behind as I'm working on Jim so I I cut Jim's shirt open and I'm looking for the wound um, I don't see it on the chest so I roll him over on his back don't see it. Well, I, I, I end up seeing a, a trickle of blood out of the armpit Jim's armpit and so I pull his sleeve up and I can see that uh, the bullet had entered into his arm and then went through his arm and into his armpit and into his chest cavity. So it had an entry wound in the arm, an exit wound under the arm, and then another entry wound into the chest cavity. Into the chest cavity. Yeah, okay. so, you know, having gone through the combat medic training at the SWAT training that I, uh, probably a week or two ago, I'm like, all right, sunken chest wound, got it. So I plug the hole, I lay him back on his stomach. Well, when I do that, blood starts coming out of his mouth um, and Jim stops breathing. So at that point, I start doing CPR. One of, one of the things I failed to mention is I had to kind of move Jim. I pulled him out of the laundry room a little bit so I could see down the hall. Because even though mom told me nobody else was in the house, I just wanted to watch the hallway. So, so you got all this going I got going this stuff on. going through my mind. I'm actually talking to myself. Like, it's funny because I'm... As my, I reverted back to training. They always talk about, you know, you're trained, you train well, you revert back to training. And in a high stress, you just, your training kicks in and that's what happened for me. My training kicked in and I remember thinking how great I did or I felt like I did good on, I checked all the boxes. Like I was, you know, that stress level kicked in. I'm talking to myself, talking myself through all the problems. And so, yeah, I'm looking down the hallway and all I can do is chest compressions because blood is just coming out of Jim's mouth. And I remember looking at him in the eye and I'm telling him, please don't die. I'm talking to him. That was kind of hard because um, I was so scared that I just killed somebody. That's a huge deal. You know, you think about it a lot in the job that it could happen and then it happens. And now you have all this chaos, not just... Okay, it happened, but now it seems secure. You have a super chaotic scene. You got an injured partner. You have family members that you don't know. You have an unsecured. You know there could be other threats in the building. That's a lot going. And now you have mind. to play medic. Right. Yeah. And now you have to play medic and try to save the guy's life that you just shot. Oh, and I remember going through a range of emotions. I was sad, and I would get mad, 
and it felt like I was doing uh, chest compressions for a long time. So again, working for a sheriff's office, we're kind of rural, and it probably, I was probably doing it for 15 or 20 minutes before the, the first person got there, which was a, a sergeant at the time, got there. And, and I could tell, you know, I'm a deputy coroner at the same time, so I know, you know, we pronounced death, and I, I knew that, you know, Jim was no longer with me. And I, was, I felt like I had to keep pumping on his chest, even though Jim wasn't with me, because I was so, like, like you know, I, are they going to say I quit too soon? So I'm just, like, so you're, pumping. You're worried about the liability. I'm worried about too. the liability. I'm worried about, like, them saying that I didn't even try. You know, I'm just, everything, like, everything's going through your head. You know, you don't, can't prepare yourself for this. How fast, just to backtrack for a second, how fast do you think from the moment he started charging you to the moment you started CPR? Like, how like, is that a minute? Less? You know, in my mind, it was forever and a day. Yeah. But if I had had to speed things up, you know, talking to my partner, because I, I have to rely on him a lot, because that, it just goes so slow motion, but it, in reality, it was probably like a minute, a minute and a half, maybe. Yeah. It was fast, maybe three minutes at the most. Um, but yeah, in my mind, it was, like I said, I'm able to, to I'm, I'm telling you a very specific timeline because right. it, it was super slow. That's how I saw it. It was like, so. Safe to say you were not gonna make it home for dinner on time that night. No, yeah, so definitely did not make it home for dinner. I didn't get home till about three in the morning. So I was almost up for 24 hours and it wasn't, <clears throat> it's kind of my decision, you know. I, I remember, you know, Sarge got there and he, he grabbed me by my shoulder and then I looked up at him and I said, Sarge, can I stop? I know he's dead, can I stop? I'm tired. Um, and he said, yeah, you're, go ahead and come on out. So I come out and I walk out and there's another officer now from another agency that was in the driveway. So, you know, kind of protocol, they, they, st they stick you with another person, just make sure you're okay. And so I walked out and, you know, walked over to him and I remember I had a jacket on. I never wear a jacket. I, I'm like anti-jacket in law enforcement because it just gives bad guys something to grab hold of. And it just kind of restricts your ability to get your tools out. And so I... I'd freeze my ass up before I wore a jacket, which, but this was a long day. I kind of nonchalantly went there thinking, you know, it's the winter day and, oh, it's mom and a son and broke into our house. How's it called? Hundred times? Hundred times. Yeah, you know, I'm wearing my jacket. It's um, chilly out. <clears throat> um, so I, I take my, I just remember walking out to the car, finally coming out of the house, kind of looking around me. I see my partner. He's with another officer already. And so I, I take my jacket on zip and I throw it on I me. Mean, I'm like bent over on the, Hanging like hanging on the side of the car, bent over, throw my jacket off because I couldn't breathe. I felt like I couldn't breathe. My jacket was restricting my breathing. I was just like deep breaths hanging over, and I'm like, I tell that officer, I was like, my partner is so lucky to be alive. And he's like, oh, well, you know, don't talk, don't talk. And I'm like, oh my god, bro. Why, why would they? Why would they tell you not to talk? Because it's just kind of a thing. They like, oh, after the shooting, after you shoot somebody, just don't talk to you, talk to a hernia. And I'm like, no, fuck that. My partner, where's he at? Like, he's lucky to be alive. Does he check, check on his neck? Because I still hadn't like actually, you know, I saw that it was superficial, but I was just like, dude, he needs to be, you know, get medics here. He needs to be checked on. Um, that was a big, big thing for me. Um, were there medics at all? Did they come? They did come. They did come. Um, they, medics came and I could see them in the background and, I knew that he, you know, Jim was no longer with us, and they, they did too, and they didn't do anything, and they checked on my partner. What What was the uh, reaction from Jim's family? You know, um, I, they got me out of there pretty quick, but Jim's family was not happy with me. Um, and, you know, I 
understand that. I understand that uh, it's a rapidly evolving situation and they just lost a loved one and so they have to play, place the blame on someone and that's gonna be me for sure. Um, but yeah, they weren't happy. I heard as the night, so they put us in a hotel room. They put me and my partner in a, in a hotel room and they had members of our department come sit with us and it was just to keep us calm, you know, and while we were in the hotel room, they were telling me that it was getting pretty rowdy at the scene because they were having to do CSI, did, you know, Department of Justice was there, you know, doing uh, CSI stuff and checking everything. DOJ is the state. State yeah. agency uh, help help out with the shootings, mm -hmm. officer involved shootings. They check in California, do they check every shooting? Uh, they're actually now, they... There's a new law that's coming up July 1. Well, actually, we're already in July. So, they, yes, officer-involved shootings, they, they, they're, they have the right to come do their own thing. Where I, our agent, our county that we work at, uh, there's a protocol team made of, it's comprised of a group of detectives from every agency, mm -hmm. state and local, in the county. And so they have a team of detectives, and then they present the case to the district attorney, and you know, who, who happens they have their own investigators there as well and they work as a team so it's collaborative so it's not like one-sided yeah um, so yeah they did that um, did, did the family did their opinion change over time as the facts came out that they started to learn what happened you know um, I don't in fact I know I, I know the answer to that and that's no and yeah. how I know that is you know for the longest time you know part of me dealing with everything um, some of the emotions I went through, I'll just go through that before I get to, you know, how I know mom's family yeah. hasn't changed is. So the biggest emotion that I had, or some of the things, uh, not the biggest, but, you know, going through training and you think about, you know, there, there might be a time that you have to use your weapon. And, and I know that people think, oh, cops just want to shoot people. That is not, not the case at all. I can't speak for every cop, but I can tell you I'm around a lot of cops. You because know, cops kind of hang out with cops because of the the stuff that we see at work, the stuff that we go through, the the nights and weekends and stuff. You know, kind of. Just, it's kind of hard to have non-cop friends when you don't see them for eight months at a time because you're on nights for eight months. So. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the 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 cops that I know and stuff. Yes, we don't want we don't want to shoot nobody, um, but we prepare ourselves that we might there may come a time we have to, and at least for me, I can only speak for me as I've always envisioned myself getting in a gun battle with, you know, the typical gangster, you know, the face tats, all tattoos all over him with the, you know, he's got like a tech nine in his waistband and he pulls up and <laughs> just robbed a bank and, you know, Good. he fires at me and I sidestep, you know, like the matrix type thing. Cause that's how you vision. So you, you know, no one's going to get the jump on me. I'm, I'm a cop. I'm 10. I was young. I was in my young thirties. I was working out. I was on the SWAT team. I'm like, I'm better than everybody. You know? No one's ever going to get me. I'm going to get them before they get me. And my vest is going to stop everything. I'm bulletproof in my vest. I had so much confidence in my vest that I can get shot by a shotgun and nothing's going to hurt me. Um, so I was maybe too confident back then. Uh, that, it was definitely eye-opener, but yeah, I was probably too confident back then. And I never envisioned or even thought about a knife-wielding attacker. You know, being able to get the jump on me and have a knife to my, you know, essentially to my throat. And more importantly, 
that didn't even scare me that much. What more importantly, what I didn't prepare for is I never prepared myself to see my partner getting hurt. I was always the guy on the SWAT team or the guy, you know, just on routine calls that if someone's going to get shot, it's going to be me. I always wanted to be the first guy in. I just, that's me. That's how I've been. I'm going to protect my partners. I'm just that guy. I want to be the shield guy, you know, on the SWAT team. The shield guy, the first guy makes entry, hold the shield, and you, you know, you don't got the long gun, you got your little handgun, and you're just... You're a block, you're, you're, they call you the meat shield. You're blocking your partners from getting shot while they're doing their business, searching the rooms around you. And that's how I want it to be, that was me. And so when my partner, when I threw Jim off of me and I didn't know my partner was there, and even if I didn't know my partner, I don't know if it would've changed, I didn't have any, there was no way to change the outcome except for my partner did not know that Jim had a knife, so he was in a crouched position, gonna tackle Jim, and then he gave Jim the position of advantage. Um, so when that happened and I saw my partner, uh, I felt like I paused. I felt like I panicked and it, again, it was slow motion. Um, it felt like it took forever to get my gun unholstered. I remember being like, looking at myself like, hold the fuck up, your partner's <laughs> getting stabbed. <laughs> and again, I still had this matrix effect going on. Um, but that was the most traumatic experience for me um, to deal with was um, not me potentially being stabbed, but watching close up in your face violent acts upon my partner that I'm supposed to protect. Um, and it still chokes me up. I'm fighting back you know, right now as I tell this story. Um, and my partner's fine. He's back at work, you know, you know, didn't require stitches. Like luckily for him, I believe the blade broke immediately. I believe the first plunge of of Jim's knife at my partner somehow must have caught him in the shoulder or the vest or something and miraculously the blade broke off because I saw about 15 what I would say about 15 hammer fist down which with the knife that I thought he was still intact so you know my partner's super lucky for that I'm super lucky you know we walked away and um but yeah so th those are some of the wide range of emotions What's the aftermath of that? Like, what what are the weeks after that look like for you? You said you were going on seven days off. I took my seven off. I went and saw, you know, they, they send you to the back, they send you to the department shrink or psychiatrist. Or is, it, is it like a, a critical incident debrief? Do you bring in dispatchers? Do you bring in everybody at the same time? We did. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, <clears throat> so the next morning, so well, we'll go through the night real quick. So I'm in the hotel room. They bring us over uh, to the office, to the interview rooms. And so you're... It's the first time I've ever been interviewed. I didn't commit crimes before I was a cop. I, you know, no crimes, but they have they have to interview you. So you nervous. go to the interview room. You got an attorney. And my attorney came to the hotel room Ooh. first, uh, and and you know I walk her through everything. Um, and she's like, "Yeah, you're, I don't see any any issues with what you're telling me." She goes, "Okay, we're gonna go sit down over here. There's gonna be a couple of detectives that are gonna talk to you." Um, and you know, I knew who they were. I didn't know their names. I don't so but they're, I, they're from other departments. Here, yeah, from area. other departments again. Okay. So we go tell a story, and it's probably it felt like an hour and a half interview. I don't know. And so you know, they asked me prior to going in, "Do you want to do you want to talk tonight, or would you rather go home and get some sleep?" Because they knew the background that I started at three in the morning, it's probably you now midnight or whatever. No, and I just wanted to be done. I'm <laughs> like, I want to talk. <laughs> I don't want to. I'm not going to sleep if you send me home. No. So let me just get done. <laughs> So I can, uh, 
digress and move on. So I told a story and then afterwards they said, hey, you can go home or you can hang out and we're gonna talk to your partner and then we'll give you a preliminary just to, you know. So I'm like, well, I'm not leaving. Like I need to know, like, you know, if I'm in trouble. I Are you, were you worried at that point that for some reason it wasn't a good, a good shoot? And I say good shoot, that means like a legal, a legal shoot. Yeah, not like a good thing, but that's just the terminology that's used a lot. I was not worried at all. Honestly, I had zero worry that it was, because I knew. Right. But I knew personally, so I just wanted to make sure that they all knew um, and that, that I did a good job of just explaining how it all went down and transpired. Um, so, but I wanted to make sure my partner was okay, and it was we kind of been separated a little bit, so I wanted to see him. And so yeah, I waited, and then uh, after they were done, they, had, they brought us in, and they sat down at basically this real long, I remember this real long briefing table and the who's who, you know, the district attorney's in there and the attorneys are in there, your all of our, our brass at the office is in there, our command structure's in there, you know, high end people and you know, uh, they basically told me that, you know, they're still obviously they got stuff going on at the house, the crime scene evaluators are checking everything else, but told me that if everything happened in the way that we both said it happened that we should, we have nothing to worry about, you know, legally. Legal coming back on us legally, so that that if it all played out, evidence supported what we said happened, then we'd be fine. So then we go home. I didn't sleep that night. Um, I bet. My son, I remember. My son was spending the night at a friend's house, and so this is early 2014. I remember the sheriff coming up to me and telling me, leaving before I left that night, that he, that he was going to have to release our names to the media. So I was like, wasn't very comfortable with that. Because <laughs> you didn't want your son to see it. Or yeah. his friends to tell him or his friend's parents. Yeah, I didn't want dad to get out. So I was like, sir, you know, sheriff, please, my, can, you, can, I, can you wait till my son comes home so I can tell him? Because uh, it's getting choked up a little bit. But how do you tell your kid? You just kill somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That was tough. At, at what point did you... Tell your wife did you call her beforehand or did she not know any of this was going on until you got home so that's a another weird kind of a story so my wife knew um, we work in different parts of the county in different areas so our county uh, you have South County and North County and uh, you know different geographical areas so she was on Facebook you know, there's a the cop wives have uh, text chains and you know little groups that they're in, and so which can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing, it. and it can be yeah. a bad thing. So my wife saw sirens. She was taking the kids for ice cream. She told me this. This is her story to me. Was that she was taking the kids for ice cream, and she sees deputy sheriffs and local PD heading down the hill towards the area of the county that I work. And then she gets a, a group text saying that there's been a, a deputy shooting. So my wife uh, tries to call me. I don't answer. I didn't know she was trying to call me. My phone must have been on silent in my pocket or whatever. So then she starts texting me. I don't answer. And so she knows. She says that she knows that I was the one. So she goes to her mom's house and she's, you know, anxious. And I think one of the other cops 
told his wife that it was me and that wife relate to my wife. I might add some culpability in that. I feel like I was somehow in that chain. And I, I believe it was talked, your wife. <laughs> I may have talked to her. Uh, so yeah, I was so, not yeah. working at the time, but I think I had the info early on. Yeah, so then you know, she's panicking. Mm. They did let me, uh, you know, again, the whole don't talk thing. Oh, don't talk. Well, once I got into the car with my buddy that I work with, um, you know, he's like, call your wife. So I did get to call her and she's crying. So that was good. So she knew. Yeah. Man. So it's not like in the movies, you're not high-fiving after that. You're, you're like, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that, yeah. <laughs> that is. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough what, few days. What about weeks later on? I mean, how does that, does that still affect you? How long did it affect you? Yeah, it's, it's affecting me right now. It still affects me. Um, yeah, so you see a psychiatrist. So they give you a, they send you to the department, psychiatrist or whatever. Uh, he doesn't actually work for the department. He's just someone that's retained by them. So you go talk to him after the shooting, and he's basically, yeah, oh, you're all good. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Cowboy, I'm good. Yeah. Hey. And, uh, is there anything you want to you know, tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Are you, you ready to go back to work? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> it's about just like that. I mean, I'm not trying to... <coughs> downplay anything or whatever but that's pretty much how it was like I'm not going to say I'm not ready what are the guys going to think if I can't go back you know I'm supposed to go back I had my for me I had seven days off already and so I they couldn't see that I had to take extra time like I'm a SWAT guy I'm tough like I'm I'm built for I'm trained for this yeah I had to go back I didn't want to go back Um, but I knew that I had to go back I mean I wanted to go back to show them but on the inside I didn't um but yeah, you were asking about that critical incident debrief. And so prior to this, I didn't know what that was. You know, they called me. I remember the sheriff calling me and saying, hey, there's going to be a, a critical incident debrief where we're going to sit around. There's going to be some people there. And it's going to be some peers, you know, some people that were involved, like your partner and maybe some dispatchers. And you're going to sit around in a room and talk. And I'm thinking, <laughs> my first thought is, Sheriff, I don't want to go. Hell I man. literally said, Sheriff, I don't want to go. No thanks. And he's like, I think it would be good for you. You know, it's maybe not for you. Maybe someone else would need, you know, it'd be good. And I really, and you know, how do you tell the sheriff? He's, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I do not want to sit around like a powwow with people and talking about things. Are you holding hands? What's going on here? Yeah, I'm, this is not for me. <laughs> so he's like, he asked me to go. And so I'm not going to tell my boss. That I'm not going, so I went, and I remember driving my patrol car, and where I lived, I lived in a smaller mountain community, um, and the main office was at the was down the hill, and I had the luxury, or I say that sarcastically, because it definitely wasn't the luxury; it was uh, it was painful, that I had to drive past where I where I was involved in my shooting every time I went to work. Ooh. Every day that I went to work, I had to drive down the road. And look up that driveway that I just, uh, you know, so that the first time I drove past it was the day I went to my debrief. And I was in my, uni- I wasn't in uniform, but I was in my, my cop car because we got take-home cars. And so burn, you know, their gas going to their function type of thing. So I was in uh, the cop car and route to the debrief and I drove past. And I never thought prior to that that I'd be driving past this guy's house on a daily basis. Oh. And as I... Come around that corner. I'm just looking up there, and it was it was tough. I 
it was tough. I started crying. I remember I got to the office and I parked outside the gate and I was just sitting in my car and one of the dispatchers, actually the dispatcher that called me on the phone that day to ask me if I could take this call, is walking up to the gate. She sees me in my car crying and she comes over to the car and then of course she starts crying and we hug each other and we walk in and so I go to the debrief and I felt at the end of the thing that it was a great thing. I remember thinking, man, this is way better than I thought. I'm going to be an advocate for those that come after me. Like, you need to do it because just talking about it, it was the first real time that I actually got to talk about it because, you know, no, definitely don't tell yeah. your spouse these details. Right. Was your partner there too? So you got to yeah. hear his side as well? My partner was there too. It was the first time I really got to hear his side because we'd been kind of, I think it was a, what, two days after the shooting. Mm. So, you know, the, not even two days. It wasn't even 48 hours because it shouldn't have been. It, it would have been uh, 48 hours had it been that night, but it was early in the morning that we met. So, the dis was the dispatch there too to share their side? There was dispatchers. Yeah, there was a dispatcher there. Yeah. yeah. Did they have any counselors or mental health people there to help you? I don't think. You know, there was uh, people that are facilitators, they call them. You know, so they're. I don't, I don't know what their level of expertise is, but they were other, essentially they were other cops mm -hmm. and other, uh, I remember there was a cop's wife there who is a marriage family therapist, but I don't know if that's why she was involved in it or if she was just a facilitator. They're just a, they promote discussion, so. Okay. But yeah, I remember thinking it was a good thing. It's the yeah. first time I had to like actually talk. Yeah. And so get it off my chest. It's the, you know, you don't tell your friends, you don't tell your wife, you don't really tell them. No, there's a lot of details that it's, you, you feel like people can't handle um, hearing, maybe. And they don't want to hear it. Yeah, that's yeah, the truth. They don't, they don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Ashley used to get mad at me all the time. Like, <clears throat> come home and be like, yeah, we're not talking about it's a, It's almost like you put that trauma on them. I had a friend that calls me frequently yeah. and still doing the job, and he, he tells me these stories about crashes. And, and like I'm like, I have to stop him. I'm like, dude, no. I don't want that trauma anymore. Like you're yeah. putting it in my brain, and I, I've seen enough where I can put piece it together, and I can picture it, and I don't, I don't want it. Yeah, dude, you can, I don't like that either. Um, I do it to help people if they need it. But yeah, to listen. To yeah. do that regularly, I don't think that would, that would be best for somebody that's left, unless they are doing some form of counseling or therapy. Yeah. So, really done, yeah. Back to Joe. So you got the debrief. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, and then I, again, go back to work. And so I was leaving day shift going to night shift. So my first day back, first night back at work, terrified, I'm nervous. Um, How long is, so is this seven days, days basically? Seven days, that's short. Yeah, it seems very short to me. <clears throat> so I'm back at work that night and, you know. I have, a, I have a question about that. Was there nobody in your command staff that said, hey, maybe this should be a little longer? They kind of left it up to me. And so I, I guess there's a pro and con to that. So now looking back at everything, I, sh I, I have a lot of thoughts on this and a lot of opinions. I've had time it's, yeah. years ago now. You know, if I could change, if Joe could make the rules on officer-involved shootings, I would force them off for two weeks. And I get it. You know, the the advocate to that is is some guys just want to get back in the saddle mm -hmm. and just get back to that routine because being off, you're just prolonging things. And so I. That side of things, I think that's why they left it up to me. They're like, okay, well, you know, what does Joe want and what's going to be best for Joe? And Joe really wanted more time, but I didn't want them to perceive me to be weak. Yeah, 
you were yeah, worried well, about their um, how they would perceive it. Yeah, perception, and and I didn't want them to worry that the shooting had affected me. Like I couldn't do my job. Like, right? You know what I mean? Because that's the biggest fear is being told you can't be you can't do your job anymore. You don't want to be the weak link in the chain. You're the the guy in the team that nobody wants. Yeah, to have their back. You don't. Yeah. Was that a plus what you were saying is like if you can't do your job you lose everything right? yeah yeah that's how you support your family mm -hmm. i got out of high school joined the military became a cop i feel like that my skill set are limited <laughs> i'm basically a hired gunman i wish you know now i say it all the time i was like i wish i had a skill i don't have any skill like i have to continue to do this job because i don't have skills like that's that's so that's, that's a funny point i'm gonna bring that up because seth and i talk about that a lot you do have skills. Nobody's taught you how to use them or explain to you how they apply it outside of law enforcement. Yeah. So we'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> back, back to your story. Yeah, so I go back to work and I had a, uh, I remember I was, the biggest thing that happened after the shooting is, is again, I was young. I, I felt like Superman. I felt like in my uniform, I was invincible. Nobody was ever gonna hurt me. If I could rip my shirt open, there would be a big giant S on my chest. And after the shooting, I no longer felt like that. I was scared. I was like, people can hurt me. I can get hurt. And it took my, I, I, I tell everybody, the only way I know how to say is it took my Superman away. Because I was fearless and you kind of need that edge as, mm -hmm. as a police officer or deputy sheriff, whatever, as a peace officer. I think you have to have that edge. Because we do stuff that we don't want to do, that nobody wants to do. We go into buildings, we go into in, you know, situations where you have to have that edge. Because if you lose that edge, you're going to get hurt. You're going to hesitate. And so for me, I was so scared because I was scared I wasn't going to react in time. Because I was going to be scared to respond and hesitate and get hurt. So that night, that particular night, I get a call and it was domestic violence. And it was... Once again, up on the hills. Cause this is your first night back? My very first night back, a domestic violence call. And we respond up there, up this windy road and long driveway, and a lady comes running out. There's a single wide trailer. She comes running out the front door. She sees our lights. And I think I've been on that call like a thousand times. <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's, it's a normal call, it seems like. But running out, oh my God, he's in there. He's in there somewhere in the trailer hiding. Yeah. And, you know, she's all beat up, and I'm like, great. And it's me and one other guy. And luckily, the other guy with me is a, is a SWAT partner of mine. Um, and he happened to be working that night. And so and, and so we do what we do. Like, we call those cowboys. We're like, okay, we're going to go get this guy. And I'm like, does he have any weapons in there? Well, yeah, there's weapons. There could, yeah, there's guns and stuff in there. But I don't think he has them. But, you know, he's, he's hiding in there. So we go to the front door, and we're like the sliding door of the trailer. And I'm like, sheriff's office, come out, come out, you know, with your hands up. He's not coming out. And I'm like, oh, please, God, let him come out. Because I'm terrified. I'm like heart shaking heart rate through the roof. And that, so this, the physiological response you're experiencing, that didn't happen before the shooting? No, I was, before it was adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, you worked off that adrenaline. And you were like, yeah, come out or I'm going to come get you type of thing. And. This time it was, please come out because I don't want to come get you. I'm terrified to come get you. I'm like, I even remember telling my buddy, my SWAT partner, I said, I looked at him and I said, I don't want to go in. And 
like just like that. And he knew it was my friend. We'd already previously talked. He knew I was shaken up. And he's like, I, he goes, I know you don't. He goes, I'm, I'm right behind you. And so he literally had his hand on my shoulder, kind of pushing me as I went along. And, you know, you go to the main, you start clearing rooms. Mm -hmm. You work the problem out, you know. And we get to the last room, you know. Every time we go, in, go into a room, I'm like, oh my God, he's going to be there with a knife. Like, I just envisioned him. I open the door and he's right there just on top of me, like, stabbing me. And we get to the last room. And so, you know, he's in that room. Because every other room, he's not in. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to go in that room. And my buddy's like, man, you know, he's tired. He's like, you got this. We got this. Come on, bro. Let's, let's clear this room. So we go clear the room and he's not there. Thank God. You know, because I was, it was like that sense of I couldn't breathe until, thank God he's not here. We give her a ride to town, you know. Deal with him later, file for a warrant or whatever. But yeah, I remember like I really considered like, can I do this job anymore? And over time, it got easier. But but my fear never went away. I was all it, nowadays. I'm I'm more a lot. I'm more cautious, I would say, but I'm not scared. Okay. But I would say it took me probably a year and a half before I was able to lose being scared. Because I, I would never admit that to my partners, I would never admit that to anybody. Uh, I could talk about it now, because mm -hmm. I know that they're probably, they're, you know, the whole purpose of this story and, and talking with you guys about it um, is so that other people who are going through what I went through know that they're not alone. Because I felt like I'm the only one. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've seen other guys go through shootings, some guys have gone through multiple shootings, and everyone experiences it differently. But nobody talks about it. So maybe I wasn't all alone at the time, but I looked at everybody else and they were like, you know, they'd finish their shooting, they'd be back at work, and they'd be, I'm looking at them like they're normal. And I'm thinking, sitting here thinking like, fuck, I'm a weak, I'm a, I'm a weak, weak individual. So do you think they were thinking the same thing about you? Going through what they were going through now that you know what it's like? I don't know. I really, they might be. They might have been thinking, oh man, he's handling it great. He's good to go. He's good to go. Yeah. Back on the beat. Seven days. Because I was hesitant. I didn't talk to everybody about it. I, I told my that guy that day, that night, it was my first night back, and I said, dude, it's, I'm, I'm having problems. And I'm like, stick by my side, because I trusted him. Because he was my swap partner, right? So I'm like, hey, bro, I need you. Yeah. That's yeah. a good partner for. So I know you went through like a bit of a rough patch after this, because I kind of, I have, obviously we're friends, so we've had contact through the whole thing. And I guess, like, what are, what are some of the negative things that you went through so without, uh, I can tell you that shortly after the shooting, I switched departments. So I, earlier I talked about I went to a police department, you know, for the money, but a big influence on that decision was I was scared to go to the mountains. I was scared to be alone in the mountains at these crazy calls that we go to. Is that is that so? People probably don't realize when you work in the mountains, uh, the response time from other people to back you up can be thirty minutes. An hour. an hour, yeah, um, and that's terrifying. If you're in a bad situation and you're hurt, and you're waiting for somebody to get there in a police department, it's it's a lot quicker always. Yeah, so the police, you work in a city, you got multiple other officers there, you got multiple other departments around. You know, peace <clears> officers <throat> that can respond a moment's notice. There's sidewalks, there's streetlights. You know, so I felt like not only was I going to make more money, which that was the huge motivating factor, but then there was that second thing that you know I could be in a city where I have cover units and multiple people there all the time and have my back up. Yeah. 
So I went there. Um, that was part of the rough thing. Um, but mental health wise, I wasn't doing good. I literally felt broken. So I remember for a long time, it got to the point where I was like, I need to see somebody. I need to talk to a psychiatrist or a counselor because I wasn't talking to no one. And I felt like I didn't, you know, and this is going to, I don't want people to take this the wrong way because I wasn't suicidal. I was never suicidal. But I just felt like I, needed, I wanted to die. But I didn't want to kill my, you know, I'm, just get that out there in the open. Yeah. I just felt broken. I wasn't happy with myself. You just wanted everything to go away. I wanted the pain to go away because I was dealing with pain every day. I didn't, I was miserable that I wasn't at the sheriff's office with my boys. I was miserable that I was doing a job that I no longer liked. I didn't like coming to work. I dread, in fact, I dreaded going to work. It was now just a money maker for me where before it was a passion of mine. I lost that passion. I lost that, I lost everything really. The shooting took everything away from me, I felt like. Um, and so I just felt like I, I went to first counseling session, maybe second counseling session. I remember them telling me, describe one word how you're feeling. And that's why I say broken because that was my one word. To this day, I felt broken. My Superman was gone. I just wasn't myself anymore. I, I wanted to get back to the old me. And so I was broken. So I finally go to counseling. Um, and that was a tough decision in itself because I was terrified that I was going to lose my job. I'm like, okay, your mental health problem, we're going to take your gun away from you. You can't do this job no more. And then what do I do? Now, my, you know, my wife was raising the kids. We made a decision a long time ago when we first got married that my kids weren't going to be, uh, that they were going to be raised by us. And then when they got home from school, they were going to see my wife. She was going to you know, be there for them. We didn't, it wasn't a dual income family. I was the breadwinner and that's, that was us. And so there was that being scared. I wasn't going to have a job anymore because, oh, he sought mental health. He's, a, he's crazy. He can't be a cop. And then there was the other stigma that comes with it as, as far as, oh, you don't want your, you don't want your boys know when you're going to see a counselor because <laughs> that's weak. Yeah. You can't be weak in this. You, no, no weakness. You can't show, no, show no mercy, right? No weakness. So I went to saw a counselor and let me tell you, it was the, the most amazing thing ever. Um, luckily for me, I found a, uh, a counselor that I can that totally related. I mean, she would drop the f bomb. She would tell me, "No, oh, you're 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 effed up," or um, and she would call me out on shit. And and it was good. It was like a life. It was like a life coach, maybe or mm -hmm. whatever, because mm -hmm. she would set goals for me. She would have me do goals. Like she'd give me homework. And you know, sometimes my homework was to go to the gym. Like I just want you to go to the gym. You don't have to work out. I just want you to go and walk around. And you can be there for five minutes for all I care. But I need you to drive from your house. And go to the gym because you used to do that and you're not doing it anymore that's great and so those little baby steps and then the next time you know go sit in the sauna you don't have to work out just sit in the sauna spend time at the gym because that was i related to at the gym that was my thing like i like going to the gym and i stopped going to the gym um so it was great to have and you know after about a year and a half of, of going i felt great again i felt good again um so it does work. It does work. That's awesome. I, you know, and being going back to being scared, I didn't even use insurance. I want, I sat down with her day one. And says, I don't want my insurance to know about this. I don't want it on paper. I don't want <laughs> I, no record of this. She's like, well, you know, I have to keep a record of it by law, but it's for me and you. It's not going to get back to your department. But I paid cash. I didn't use my car. Like <laughs> I was zero I was, zero transaction. You take Bitcoin. I was so frustrated <laughs> with you at the time because I was like, dude, you need to go, and you're like, would not use insurance. I'm like, it 
it's gonna be fine. But yeah, you had you were like you were in that spot. You were paranoid about it, and I get it now. Uh, but I, I think that's really interesting. You paid cash out of pocket. No one can know about. No this. one can know, <laughs> like because you were worried about that stigma, which is yeah. it's wild, so, right? When you look back on it. So you saw her for a year and a half. You said about a year and a half. Okay, and then post therapy, you feel like you're back to normal, like back on your game. I'm back on my game. Um, I'm definitely, yeah, definitely got me back on my game so I can do the job, mm -hmm. but it doesn't erase the feelings. It doesn't right. take away, you know, I, it doesn't take it all away. It just helps me deal with it. Um, gives me, it just helps me deal with it more, I guess you would say, because I don't feel, no longer feel broken, but it, it definitely helps you manage it. It helps me manage. There you go. Yeah, it helps me manage what, what's going on. Yeah, those are skills that I feel like should be in the academy in some way that everybody should get right away coping skills on, on how to deal with that kind of stress, which is maybe lacking a little bit. Definitely is lacking. I think it should be mandatory that you go to a counseling, you know, for a couple months after your officer involved shootings or a traumatic incident. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be a shooting. I've been to many other calls where there's uh, dealt with trauma that, you know, I think when you deal with trauma, it kind of, uh, scars your brain forever <laughs> forever like yeah. forever like and so i there's a lot of events that i can recall where i just scare you know scars your brain it's a brain scar so i think i can think of a few yeah so yeah i think i don't know if they're scars necessarily they're memories memories yeah um learning how to how to process them or manage them is what you're saying is not taught it's, yeah um, uh, for me personally is the physiological response that can be triggered that mm -hmm. seems completely irrational at the time. Just Joe, you telling us these stories, my heart rate's been like pretty high the whole time. I got my watch, I've been watching it. Um, it's crazy. Which is crazy. And for me in the fire service, man, I'll drive by, like we'll drive by somebody burning trash in their yard. And I'm like, damn, all of a sudden some random trailer fire, like where we were waiting in a burn up body, like all that comes right back. Like the smells, the taste, the feeling, it's like, oh. That's great. <laughs> I get to relive it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so you, Joe, you told me a <clears throat> story the other day uh, that just happened to you. Is that the last day you worked before? Before I came out here, here to visit. Yeah. That uh, kind of I, I thought was interesting and kind of ties to the other one as far as that busy. Oh, so this just months. happened. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, it actually wasn't the last day that I worked. It was. On a Friday, okay. And I got off work Monday night. So I worked. So it was a Friday night, and Tuesday morning I was on airplane here. Okay. So it was okay. yeah, my last shift. So yeah, I thought that one was kind of interesting and kind of relates. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't mind sharing? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a brief rundown. Okay. Press for time here. So we get a call, uh, and the person who calls says that uh, his uncle is at his house visiting, and his uncle uh, took a bunch of pills and picked up a gun, a handgun off the refrigerator and held it to his head and said he wanted to die. And so he says his uncle walked out on the front porch and he locked the front door and called us. So that's what we're dealing with. So as we're going, he's, you know, we learn a little, about, a little bit about this guy. So he's a, a veteran, been through a couple of wars, he has PTSD. He's already had a couple of PTSD issues through the, the vets. 
How old is this guy? Older guy, younger guy? Older guy in his 60s, I would okay. say. Um, and so, you know, the, we learn all this, and then he says his uncle's sitting on the front porch, and they got a camera. They can watch him through the camera, and I guess they watch him, his uncle load around into the chamber. So he racks the chamber, and then the, he sets the gun on the chair, on the table next to him. He's sitting in a chair, and he said he's been drinking, so it looks like he was passing out. So, you know, we're coming from all parts of the county, again, working in the rural area. We've got to drive out there. Um, is this, a, this is, is a fairly common call for you guys? This Similar? Very, these calls are a dime a dozen. It, yeah. it, it happens far too often these yeah. days. And quite, you know, my personal opinion is I'm tired of dealing with them. But, oh, I'm sure. But it's an everyday call. So you're at this point, are you feeling stressed out? Or is super it like, stressed hey, out. You are, oh, okay. This is, a, this, is, this is a super stressful thing. It's triggering my last come. So what happens? This is a no-win situation. He kills himself. He points the gun at us, and we kill him. And we're hated. You know, We just killed a military veteran right before the 4th of July who's been to a couple of wars we're the asshole cops right mm -hmm. it's a it's a lose-lose like this is so we get to the area and we, and we essentially what we do is I have the troops gathered up and I'm coming up with a game plan on how we're going to attack this pro or work this problem out because you're a supervisor because I'm now. a supervisor so you I'm got, like you you hey I remind you not to use any of their names of the guys on your team but while you're telling the story, just so you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, hey, you, you do less lethal, which is a, what we call a less lethal shotgun. It shoots a... The 40 millimeter? Well, we have, it's not the 40 millimeter. These so are just 12 gauge. gauges. They shoot... Um, like a beanbag. The yeah. beanbag rounds through the 12 gauge. Um, you, I want you to use a taser. You know, we got to... We game plan it. Cause yeah. Nowadays, cops are being scrutinized for not pre-planning. Mm -hmm. Because you get there and it's just a... Nobody knows who's got what responsibility, and someone gets shot. And so, anyways, yeah, we game plan it. While we're game planning, dispatch tells us, "Hey, he left the, you know, uh, your person called back and said that the uncle left the left this left down the street towards the park, and we're right in front of the park. Well, oh, shit, where's he coming from? Like a city park? Yeah, a city park. Yeah. And this is we're we're kind of in a community now. It's not big enough to be a city, but it's a town. And so he's coming down Main. You know, we're on Main Street. And there's a park right there. And there's a bar right here. And, you know, there's patrons at the bar, and so we're like, oh, shit, you know, he's coming to the park. Now I got a problem. Now I got not just a potential suicide suspect, but I got a guy walking through town with a, with a gun. Who knows what? And a loaded gun at that. He took the gun. The RP says. You have it on camera. You know the reporting party says, yeah, he took the gun with him and put it in his back pocket. And so we see a guy matching the you know, He says he's wearing a green shirt, and the disc is walking towards us. So we illuminate him with our overheads, and I... Have one of my uh, deputies get on the PA system and start making announcements. And you know, we're going to call him John. John's not his real name, but it's a good name to use. So we're like, John. You know, you Sheriff's office, John. We, we, we just want to talk to you, man. You know, can we see your hands? And he's two blocks ahead, way down there. And so he's just walking. We can't see what's in his hand. I mean, it's nighttime, dark, pitch dark. Um, and John, I can see him look up at us and stop, hesitate, and then he turns down another street out of, the, out of view, and he's heading in another direction. So I'm like, okay, um, I don't want to lose sight. The worst thing is to let him in someone's, you know, kick someone's door and go with the gun, so I don't want to lose sight of him, so I tell, tell the troops, let's move up, keep sight on him. So, and again, me, 
that mentality, like no one's gonna get hurt besides me. I'll take the lead because if he's around the corner and when I pull my car up and he starts blasting the car, I don't wanna be the guy, I don't want you guys to get hurt, I'll get hurt. <laughs> Can I just hold up Posse for a second and say that's fantastic leadership, by the way, because that, that is an uncommon trait among leaders a lot of the time, and I applaud you for that. That even all the crap you've been through, you're willing to be the guy that takes the hit for your team, so. Adrenaline. Thank you, Joe. And just, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not gonna yeah. see a partner get hurt. That was traumatic, <laughs> traumatizing, so. I don't want to see nobody get hurt. I'd rather see myself get hurt. Yeah. So I pull my car up, put my car up, and I see him, and I spotlight him, and then my partners pull up beside me, and we're out, and we're talking, and we're trying to have him come back to us, and he turns around and comes back to us. It's kind of in the middle of the of the um, block, I would say, and he turns and starts walking towards us, and there's a fire. We're not directly in the middle of the intersection, so we're kind of on the edge. He walks up and I'm like trying to get him to sit on the fire hydrant. I'm like, you know, John, just have a seat on the fire hydrant, bud. You're not in any trouble. We just want to talk. You know, the whole, you know, verbal judo. Yeah, the verbal judo, I guess they would call it. And so he walks past and walks back, starts walking away from us. He comes out to the intersection we're at and turns his back and walks away from us. And as he's walking, he's wearing gym shorts and I can see a bulge in his left pocket and I can see a heavy item swaying as he walks. I'm like, Oh, there's the gun. It's in his left pocket. You know, my partner's identified as well. And we're like, okay, he's got the gun in his left pocket. He turns back around. And he'd already told us to shoot him. When he was approaching us before he turned his back to us, he's like, just fucking shoot me already. And I'm like, no, John, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to shoot you. Meanwhile, we're all, he's probably just sees the barrel of our guns or whatever. And, so he turns back around, he's walking towards us. And when I'm trying to get him to have a seat on the curb or have a seat on the fire hydrant, and he's like, just fucking shoot me, fucking get it over with already, just kill me. And I mean, that's just what he's telling us. And I'm like, John, I don't want to do that. We're not here to hurt you. We don't want to hurt you. We're not going to hurt you, John. And for some reason, I don't know why, John gravitated towards me as he locked eyes. And he's getting mad and he's aggressively approaching me now. And so he's determined to walk right up on me. And so he's walking up towards me. And I remember, you know, I took my safety. I had my uh, AR in my hands. I took my safety off. And I'm looking at John, like, please, God, don't, I don't want to do, go through this again. <laughs> and I'm pleading with John, just, John, stop. Just stop, John. Don't, don't come any closer. Because I knew that John was at, at a distance where, you know, my reaction to his action, you know, yeah. reaction time I'm gonna get shot so I'm like please God let me shoot get shot in the vest <laughs> again you know, here I am a similar situation as we were before and please God let my vest work and I don't want to kill this guy and so I'm hyperventilating I remember I'm breathing heavy at this point starting to start to panic that now that it's a he's coming too close and the, and he had his hand oh, to make matters worse I forgot to tell you kept reaching in his pocket. Like he's doing the motion. He wants to die. Suicide by cop. You, know, you see it all the time. You see it on the media and talk yep. about it. That's what John was trying to get me to do. And so I yell uh, for my partner who had the less lethal. Like, I yelled less lethal. And my partner fires a, a beanbag round at him. And it was effective. It turned John away. You know, he didn't like that. And, and then he fired another round. And then so that pushed him further away from me. And then I yell, uh, I basically yell again, again, uh, a couple more times. So the whole purpose of this, these bean bound rounds and you know, why I'm doing that is, uh, I'm taking away his OODA loop. Uh, 
so I'm, I'm messing with his brain. So he, he has to react to us instead of us reacting to him. Mm -hmm. So I have him fire a couple more rounds. And at that point he lays down on the ground and he kind of, he's screaming. And I think he believes he was shot with a real gun. It wasn't, mm -hmm. um, but he's in, he's rolling on the ground now and his arms are outstretched where I seize the moment and I run up to him. I give my rifle to my other partner and I just basically mount him at that point. Uh, he's on his stomach and I just throw my, I remember mounting him and squeezing my, my, my thighs together super hard so he couldn't reach between my thighs and grab the gun. And I grab one hand and my partner grabs the other and we get him cuffed. And I roll him over and I'm trying to find the gun. I reach in his pocket and I pull out a loaded magazine. <laughs> and I'm like, where's the fucking gun? Because I'm freaking out now. <laughs> like, because I know we had a gun. No, it's there somewhere. And you know, John eventually tells us it was, he's, Essentially what he did is when he went out of sight when we first engaged him and he turned up the road to go out of sight, he went and set the gun down by a fence. And then when we saw him again, he turned around and walked towards us. He wanted us to believe he had a gun even though he didn't. He set it down. Why Did he say why he did that? He never, never said. But essentially, you know, so John would talk for a second and then he would go angry. He was drunk. Mm -hmm. He was on some pills. And so he would be, you know, that's why, because you know, he didn't want to, he's like, fuck you, I'm not telling you where the gun's at. And then I was like, John, I don't want no kids to find it. So then he was like, all right, it's over there by the fence. Yeah. I'm like, John, you know, what's going on? Fuck you, I don't want to talk to you. Hey, John, what branch of service were you in? Because, you know, I'm a vet, you're a vet. You know, fuck you, you don't care about me. So <laughs> he was up and down. He didn't really give too much explanation. But, uh, like, so what was the, you having any response after that? Like, your physiological response? Did... So my physiological response was is, these, the current times that we're in, um, I would have shot an unarmed man. Yeah. He didn't have a gun. I believed, I knew he had a gun. I could see it in his pocket. Everything told me he, he had a gun. Absolutely. And if I'd have pulled that trigger, you know, essentially what they want us to do now, you know, what, what does the public want or what, are, what do the lawmakers want? They, nowadays, they want, they want you to see the gun. So if I would have saw the gun, it would have been too late. I would have been shot. Mm -hmm. I'd have been, you know, there's no way I could see that gun and react in time and shoot him. I knew he had the gun. He had his hand in his pocket. So, you know, the whole, I was just trying to prepare myself. Am I going to do this? Am I going to take a shot and then shoot? Or am I going to, as he pulls his hand up real quick from his pocket, am I just going to shoot? Because I don't want to get shot. Like, but I would have been that guy. So this, I would have been the guy at the department that just killed an unarmed vet. That's, and I went, I struggled. I went home that night and I thought about it and like, dude, I can't do this job no more. Like, I don't know if I can continue to do this job. That, that, that right there, for the, I had to work a couple more shifts before I came to Idaho, but it was just like, it still weighs on me. Like, I cannot believe, I would, you know, as you said, term good shoot, it would have been a, probably a justified shoot. It would have been a justified shoot. Yeah. I know it would have been a justified shoot based on all the circumstances. And the other part I left out too is prior, so when we lost sight of John, um, and we moved our vehicles back, Dispatch came back on the air and told us that they believe John might be in, in, on his way to his mom's house to kill mom's boyfriend because that was the direction he was headed. And the guy who originally called in, the nephew, said that he believed John was going over there because I guess there was, they were talking about mom's boyfriend. John didn't like mom's boyfriend. So, so not only was he potentially suicidal, he was homicidal, so all these things were coming into play. I've, I've had that similar situation uh, with the attempted suicide by cop, and I, like my feelings afterward were anger. And well, definitely relief that I didn't have to shoot the kid, uh, but ang angry like you, you, you motherfucker! Why are you putting me in this position? I don't want to have to pull the trigger. Like you're gonna put that on me, that I'm gonna have to live with it for the rest of my life. 
imagine. I didn't really feel the anger part. I was more concerned with the aftermath had I shot. So I was more concerned with the live, not really the liability, but yeah, the liability, I guess you would say. So I knew it would have been a good shoot, like I was just saying. However, I knew that my name would have been drugged through the mud. I knew that I would have been on admin leave. I knew that I was coming up on this vacation. I didn't want to miss this, you know, they would. He's already been in a shooting before. Yeah. Is he trigger happy? Is he trigger happy, exactly. Mm -hmm. Why is this guy already shot two people? Then my family would have been, and I know, you know, the way the current climate is, the hate cops and everything. Oh, you killed a veteran before the 4th of July. You know, F you. The protesters would have been at my house. And then the other thing, too, is, you know, how do you, you know, I'm just going to say it, the race card. Mm. You know, had he been of a different race or this race, uh, you know, are they going to, you know, hurt my kids or go to my, you know what I mean? Just those types of things are how, I'm sorry, if you're a cop these days, you have to think about it because you see it. I have a, I know people that were involved in an incident in Sacramento area um, and uh, their names came out and their wedding rehearsal dinner was crashed by BLM. Windows were being broken, like, you know, so you think about these types of things. And, and I'm, that's what I, I had all weekend to think about that prior to my vacation start. Yeah. Like, dude, can, can I keep doing this job? Because there's going to be more incidents, and I just can't handle these incidents. It's stressing me out. What, uh, I guess we need to wrap it up, but um, what is something that you would like the public to know about law enforcement? Well, I, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, I don't think, you know, I think they get the message that, that we're human beings. Mm-hmm. That... There's so much more to, the, to just putting on a uniform and dealing with, you know, I call, I call it the trash. Like, we deal with America's trash. No, the problems that nobody else wants to, to deal with, that's our calls. You're not, not like talking about necessarily the people, but no, the, no, no. The, uh, the issues. The issues, issues yes. yes. Right. The events. The yeah, yeah, definitely not people. I know, I know what you mean, but I figured I should clarify yeah. that. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> no, it's definitely not the people because, you know. Yeah. The people matter. I'm just saying this the problems. It's the people's problems. Stuff that they don't want to address, they call us. And we're, you know, even more so nowadays, we're, we're you know, we're, we're your preacher because we preach at people. You know, we're, we've got, hey, you know, John, I don't want to hurt you, John. I love you, John. Mm-hmm. John, let's, let's work this out, John. You know, and then we're your counselor, dealing with the mental health stuff. Or, you know, we're your parent because we get calls for nine year old kids. And I'm like, how do you not know how to parent your nine-year-old? I've got three kids. Like, I'm not going to call the cops to come parent for me, but we got to go parent for people. Like, we are the catch-all. And a medic. And a gunfighter yeah. is needed. Uh, what else? It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Well, thank you uh, for sharing. I know it's not easy to share, um, to rehash all those memories, but it's, I think there's a lot of value in, in getting that message out, and I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I just hope that there are somebody can benefit from this conversation yeah yeah that's the point of this is to get these stories out there because what we see in the media is not the reality right and it's never from the officer's perspective um, or the anybody in public safety or the military or across the spectrum like it's it's always not always it seems like more often than not it's skewed to fit somebody's political agenda or somebody's like messaging about it specific area or specific topic and it's never just the story um, I think if the public hears these stories it's going to help open up a lot of dialogue and a lot of um, 
I think we make a lot of progress or a lot of change in the future. Like you just talking about how much therapy helped you. Maybe another officer will hear this and be like, oh man, I shouldn't be scared of that. Yeah, he did it. I can do it. 100%. And you know, tactics have changed. You know, we've evolved. So I, I, anyone listening to the story today be like, hey, he's a fucking idiot. He went into, he went into the house to go help. You know. There's one question I forgot to ask. Does your department run body cams? We do now. Did not then? Did not then, no. Okay. It's very, super new to us. Um, yeah. Last few years we haven't, but yeah. back then definitely not. But yeah, tactics have changed, so don't judge my story based on tactics. You know, that was 2014. Yeah. We're not going in on a mental health patient anymore. Right. If, if the house is empty and someone wants to commit suicide and they're in there by themselves, we're not going to rush in and save them and get us have to kill them or them have to kill us. We're not doing that anymore. Obviously, things have changed, but take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, well. Thanks for sharing, Joe. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. See ya. See ya. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Copy That Radio. We hope you enjoyed it. And where can you find us, Jared? You can find us at Copy That Radio on Instagram or anchor.fm slash copy that radio. And also everywhere podcasts are hosted, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and all the other major platforms. Fantastic. And if you're looking to relocate to North Idaho, please hit me up at my business, 108 Real Estate. You can find us on Instagram at 10, written out, T-E-N, underscore, 8 Real Estate. And you can find me at Northland Strength on Instagram or at Northland underscore CDA. Those are my business and my wife's business. Well, thanks again. And we hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.